Welcome to Think Bible, the podcast that exists to challenge, edify, and encourage Christian women to think and live biblically, all for the glory of God. I'm your host, Stephanie Smith. Welcome, friends, to the Think Bible podcast. I'm Stephanie Smith, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to join us today. Well, many of you that know me know that I am kind of a book nerd. I enjoy um, the the writing process, the editing process. I'm, I'm even kind of crazy about grammar, and I know that's so strange. <laughs> but um, I love a good story. So in recent weeks and months, the Lord has had me studying the book of Esther, and I've just been amazed at some of the riches there. There are deep theological truths and pictures of our New Testament lives and the believer's relationship with Christ. It's been so encouraging to dissect the book and look at some of its pieces in light of our gospel, God's gospel, and all that Christ has done for us. Really, Esther, in many ways, is a type or a picture of the gospel. So, um, why Esther? Well, partly because it's just told so well. God, of course, is the very best story writer there ever was or ever will be. There are classic components in the story of Esther that literature is still patterned after. So there's character development, plot, climax, irony, contrast, and a new one for me, peripety. So this is a word we're going to talk about more in just a minute. Um, But the story, and I should say it's a history, it's a true story, not fiction, but it is actually written as a chiasm. And we've talked about that word before on Think Bible. It's basically an X. Think of the letter X and what it looks like the shape of a poem, a passage of scripture, or in this case, an entire book, an entire story, mimics the letter X, or in Greek, that was called a chi, and that's why the um, device of literature is called a chiasm. Every part of the story has an opposite, usually a negative or a reverse of the original. So a short chiasm in scripture is the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So you can easily see how that is an opposite, a chiasm. But Esther is a long involved chiasm with so many parts. So one aspect of the chiasm is the reversals that happen all throughout the book. So we're gonna look at some of those now just because it's so interesting and it's gonna point us to the the end goal and the final point of the story. I'm going to be assuming that you are familiar with the basic um, plot line of Esther and its characters. So if you're not, I would really encourage you to read it now before you listen to this. It is not a long book. It won't take you very long. And it is found in the Old Testament between Nehemiah and Job. So that's just shortly before Psalms. So, Here are some of the reversals, the chiasms in the book of Esther. First, it opens with two feasts. Each of these was held by King Ahasuerus, known in history as King Xerxes, 
and the first feast was to show off his riches and his glory to the princes and servants of Shushan. The second was to show off for all the people of the city. But the book closes at the end with two more feasts, but this time the Jews of Shushan are the ones feasting and rejoicing for two days when they had victory over the enemies. And then at the decree of Queen Esther and Mordecai, who by then were second in command of the kingdom of Persia, the Jews throughout the empire observed the feast of Purim. This feast was then instituted as a yearly observance to help the people remember God's deliverance for them at that time. So it started with heathen, pagan, um, humanly focused feasts, and it ended with Jewish, God-directed, and God-honoring feasts. So I thought that was interesting. At the beginning of the story, Esther is commanded by Mordecai to keep her heritage, her race, a secret. It was not an advantageous thing to be known as a Jew in Persia. But by the end of the story, she and all the other Jews were boldly and happily proclaiming their Hebrew roots. That's a big change. In chapter 3, the evil Haman revealed his wicked plan to destroy all the Jews. Those of you who know the story well will remember that Haman was a descendant of the Amalekite king way back from the time in Israel's history when King Saul ruled. Now, um, Israel and the Amalekites went to war or battle, and God specifically told Saul to kill all the people and all the animals of Amalek. But Saul disobeyed and kept the king and many of the flocks and the herds alive. Well, Haman was one of the consequences of Saul's disobedience. At any rate, the reversal here is that Haman called for the scribes to write a letter of destruction which he had planned for the Jews, and he had that letter sent throughout all 127 provinces of Persia. But by chapter 8, Mordecai was charged with writing a letter and sending it out to all those same provinces. Yet instead of destruction, the second letter, Mordecai's letter, gave the Jews power and authority to defend and avenge themselves against their enemies. So what was intended to be the Jews' downfall, their destruction, turned to be their deliverance and their salvation. Also concerning those letters, Haman sealed his with the king's ring, which Ahasuerus had personally given to him. But by chapter 8, Mordecai was now in possession of that same ring. And again, Ahasuerus took it from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, which Mordecai then used to seal his letters. So we see the transfer of authority from the Jew's enemy, God's enemy, to the Jews and God's friend. Haman's law was to be publicly displayed in every place it went, as was Mordecai's law. And after receiving Haman's letter, the Bible tells us that the city and the palace of Shushan was perplexed. They were confused because this extreme action didn't make sense to them. The Jews were not a rebellious people to the Persian rulers, nor were they a burden to the economic situation. 
On the contrary, they were helpful and contributed much to the financial prosperity of the kingdom. So neither they nor the other Gentiles in the land understood this desire to eliminate them. And of course, we know that stemmed from Haman's personal ancestry. But after Mordecai's letters went out reversing the fortunes of the Jewish people, the palace and the city of Shushan, both the Jews and the Gentiles, rejoiced and were glad. So that was a big change from that perplexity to this rejoicing. Here's one that I thought was really neat. At the beginning of the story, when Mordecai learned of Haman's plot to hurt the Jews, he put on sackcloth and ashes. Esther 4 verse 1 says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. Obviously, he knew that evil had been determined against him and his people. So, of course, he would lament over this. But at the end of the book, we see him in an entirely different outfit and situation. After Mordecai's edict was sent to the provinces, he had been given all of Haman's position, his property, and his authority. And the scripture says in Esther 8, 15 and 16, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. What a change! And just a hint here for laters, uh, a later part of our podcast. This is such a clear picture of our salvation. From sackcloth and ashes, rags of our own personal righteousness, which are worthless, to the blue and white and purple and the gold crown, representing, of course, the garments of our salvation. When we recognize that our sin and the condemnation condemnation that has been determined against us, we cannot help but weep and mourn. But when we come to God, the King, and obtain His favor because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, the Bible tells us that we become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We will reign as kings and priests with God. What an amazing transformation. Another reversal is that Mordecai mourned publicly at the beginning of the story. But that mourning only went as far as Mordecai could go as he traveled through the city while he sat at the king's gate. But later in the story, he was honored and exalted by the king. And chapter 9 tells us that he was great not only in the palace, but his fame spread through all the provinces. His reputation grew greater and greater. I would say that God answered Mordecai's prayers exceedingly abundantly, above all that Mordecai asked. And here's an interesting reversal that's found through Haman's wife. Her name was Zeresh. In chapter 5, while Haman was prospering and had the king's favor, Zeresh felt confident that nothing could go wrong or against her husband. 
when he complained of Mordecai's refusal to bow to him, she simply told him to murder Mordecai. She didn't even seem to think that there would be any consequence to that action. But just one chapter later, Zeresh completely changed her story and predicted that Haman would certainly fall before Mordecai. As we draw toward the climax of the story, Haman was invited to a banquet with the king and the queen. This was cause for great pride and boasting in Haman's heart. He was glad, proud, boastful of his position with those monarchs of Persia. But of course, we already know the reason he was invited to the banquet and that the tide was turning against Haman. After Haman had to publicly honor Mordecai, his joy and his pride had been turned to mourning. He covered his head and was ashamed. And of course, we know that Haman's days were short as the full revelation of his plot against the Jews, against Queen Esther, was revealed. Although Haman built gallows on which to hang Mordecai, he was actually hanged on those gallows. And eventually, his ten sons were hanged on them too. So those are just some of the reversals within that story of Esther. And I just found them so fascinating to to read through and pick them out and meditate on them and see um, just a shadow of the great reversal that God has wrought for us through salvation in Jesus. So all of those reversals bring us to the element of the story that I really wanted to get to today, and it's called peripety. That's the new word that I've learned and the new um, understanding of, of this in literature and especially in the story of Esther. Peripety is a sudden or unexpected reversal of circumstances or situation, and God's word is full of them. Think about Noah. The world was perverted and lost, not fearing God nor his laws, and God had determined to destroy humans and the earth. But he used one man and his three sons to keep that human race alive. He put them into a boat, which was not likely a common thing in that time, and he destroyed the world with a flood in a land where there had not been rain before, most likely. And then God used a catastrophic flood, unprecedented and unrepeated in history. He used destruction to bring renewal and salvation to his creation and his people. Talk about unexpected. Let's think about Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob, sold into slavery by his brothers, and he was used by God to rescue those same brothers. He went from the hated younger kid to a slave, to a prisoner. He just kept getting lower and lower despite having done nothing wrong. And to immediately, he became the highest ruler, save Pharaoh, in Egypt. He saved thousands of people's lives, his own family included. And as the famous verse in Genesis says, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were determined to obey God no matter the consequences? Because they refused to obey the edict to bow to a human king, they were cast into the fiery furnace 
where the obvious expectation was death. But instead, God preserved them and their lives so that not even their clothes smelled of smoke. And he sent a fourth person to be in the furnace with them, which was likely a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Talk about a surprise. Imagine what that king thought when he looked in the furnace and saw the fourth figure. And in that same book, Daniel, there's a similar story when Daniel was cast into the lion's den. Of course we expected that the hungry lions would eat him, but instead God shut the lion's mouths and preserved Daniel's life. So the Peripedian Esther begins in chapter 6 in a very unexpected way. This is actually the pivotal moment of the story, and it's so minute that you might not have ever thought of it. Um, In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, On that night could not the king sleep. That seems very mundane and boring, doesn't it? All of us know that it's frustrating to not get a good night's sleep, but it's not like it changes our lives usually. So who cared that the king could not sleep? But this is the event that God used to change the momentum of the whole story, the whole book. Up to this point, the Jews were headed for destruction and annihilation. Haman seemed to have the high hand. Mordecai seemed to be the low man. They were already in captivity, exiled from their promised land and from their homes. And Haman had the ear of the king. He was going to put a final end to them. But on this night, the king could not sleep. So he called for the chronicles to be read. Probably he hoped that it would be boring and he could fall asleep. But instead, he was reminded of how Mordecai had saved his life. You might remember this part where Mordecai had overheard two men talking about their plot to to, uh, kill the king. And he had passed that news on to Esther who had told the right um, authorities, and the king's life was saved, and those two unfaithful servants were put to death. So, somehow it had been overlooked that the king would do anything to honor or thank Mordecai for his loyalty in this situation. Um, As the king was awake that night, he heard that story from the chronicles, and he determined he would do something to honor Mordecai. Now, of course, the king did not know that Mordecai was a Jew and that this whole thing from Haman was directly affecting him. But God knew. And so what we see here is though God's name is not mentioned, God's hand is clearly at work and he is reversing the momentum of these events. So this is where it happened. He, the king said, Who's in the court? And it happened to be Haman, who was coming to ask permission to hang Mordecai on a gallows. (laughs) But instead, the king spoke first, and he said, What should I do to honor a man that I want to honor? And Haman, in his pride, thought, Who would the king want to honor but me? So he pulled out all the stops and gave every honorable thing he could think of. Put this man in the king's clothes put him on one of the king's horses, parade him through the town, proclaiming for all to hear at how the king is honoring this man. And then, of course, the king said, 
that's perfect. Now I want you, Haman, to go do that for Mordecai. Oh, Haman's humiliation at having to honor his enemy. And things just got worse and worse for Haman from there. At the start of chapter 7, Haman goes to a banquet with the king and the queen of Persia. And though he might have had temporary joy at that, by the end of the chapter, he was dead, hanged on his own gallows, the ones he built for Mordecai. People who know more than I do about the culture and the history of Persia say that this was likely not a hanging as something we would think of like from the Old West, but more of a large wooden stake that Haman was impaled upon. Now, all of these examples throughout all of Scripture, but especially this one here in Esther, they are leading us to one conclusion. The ultimate peripety is found in Jesus Christ. Who would have ever imagined that our Creator would join us on this, His created planet, as one of His own creation? That He would suffer and die to redeem us back to Himself? And not only that, but he would rise from the dead, not just spiritually rise, physically. His own human body was resurrected from that grave. That is an unexpected turn of events. And sinners like you and I, once we experience the redeeming, forgiving grace and the power of God at work in our lives, are also examples of peripety. We were bound for hell. We were chained in bondage to sin and to our flesh. We had no hope or reason to expect any help from anyone. But God, he sent Jesus. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God has made us alive together with Christ. So there is one more surprising act of peripety in Esther, which seems a little bit insignificant in light of all that's going on on in the book, but it just made such a profound impact on me during my study, so I want to share it with you too. When Esther returns to King Ahasuerus and begs for the life of her people, the Jews, he grants her the permission and authority to write whatever edict she wants in order to accomplish that end. She and Mordecai came up with the plan that the Jews should be allowed to defend themselves, actually to vindicate themselves. This is not vengeance, doling out payback for someone who offended them. But this is justice. The people of God were being attacked by their enemies. And God gave them the permission the authority, even the power to defeat those enemies. Just as God, through Jesus, has given believers the ultimate victory over sin, the flesh, the world, and even death, Esther's decree also gave the Jews permission to take the spoil of every man, woman, and child, every household that would be defeated in God's name. Yet three times in chapter 9 we are told that the Jews did not take any spoil. They refused it. They would not plunder their enemy in this case. So why is that significant? 
Esther apparently had had no trouble taking Haman's estate and putting Mordecai in charge of it. Isn't that plundering? So within the same book and even the same sequence of events, plundering did happen in one case, but not in another. What's the difference? In the case of the Jews at large, plundering the Persian people, there was an ancient tie that the people were honoring. Remember again that story of Saul and the king of the Amalekites? Saul failed and was rejected from being king because of his choices at that event. And what was Saul's sin? Idolatrous plundering. When God said, do not take any of the spoil, Saul justified and excused his lustful heart, and he and the people kept the best of the animals, and they kept the king alive. Saul rejected God in favor of material gain. Therefore, God rejected him. This time in Esther, the Jews in Persia refused to touch the spoil. The Israelite nation was once again doing battle with the Amalekites through Haman's connection and his evil plot, and the people this time were victorious. They did not give in to taking the spoil which God had commanded them to not touch. So, God's people were redeemed, vindicated against their enemies, and ultimately obeyed the command of God from way back at the time of Saul. They finally did kill all the Amalekites as God had commanded. Remember later in the story, um, all the sons of Haman were also hanged on those gallows. And the Israelite people refused to take any of the spoil of the Amalekites, or the Persians in this case. But that's not all that's happening here. The story of the Jews' redemption in Shushan and Persia is a type. It's a picture of our redemption in Christ. Just as Esther's pleas and Mordecai's letters were sent out to give the people authority and to defend themselves, Jesus' death and resurrection has given us the authority to stand against Satan and his attacks on our soul. Christ has already won our victory. But just as Esther and Mordecai plundered Haman's house and took it for their own, we can plunder Satan's territory too. As we witness and evangelize the lost, as we grow in our sanctification and our walk with the Lord, as we raise families who know and live in the truth of the gospel, we plunder Satan. We reclaim what he has tried to destroy and steal. We are born again to live for God. And what a surprising turn of events that is. To recognize that Satan has no more power over us because greater is he that is in you and me than he that is in the world. That is peripety, my friends. I'm going to read a quote to you now from a man named Brian Sauvé. It says, Where the victory in Esther was temporary and physical, the victory of the cross is eternal and not limited to the physical, but capturing body and soul. Enemies that railed against the sun are now saved by the sun. Well, I was greatly encouraged and blessed by these lessons that I learned from the book of Esther, and I pray that you have been too. 
So let me ask you a few questions. As you study your Bible this week, try looking for some of these elements. Is there a chiasm? Is there a reversal? Is there peripety? Is there some um, aspect of these in your own life? And how do these and the other elements you find open your spiritual understanding of God's word and his grand plan of redemption for you? And now best of all, how will that change your life, your choices, your words, your thoughts, even your actions today? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful for your grand plan. Father, it's beyond our comprehension sometimes and our understanding of how intricately um, orchestrated every detail has been. And we're grateful for it, Lord. It shows us your sovereignty. It shows us your power, your greatness, and your goodness to um, order all of these events for the rescuing, for the salvation of the souls of your people. Thank you, Lord, that we can know you as Savior and that we can rest secure that you will orchestrate, that you will ordain and plan and direct every step of our lives that we can trust and rest in you um, for all these things. Thank you for the book of Esther, for the story there and the things we learn from it. Thank you for all your word. And thank you for your Holy Spirit's um, enlightenment and direction as we study. I pray that you would be very real to each one of our listeners today as they seek out your truth and your presence found in your word. Bless us all now as we go our separate ways. Help us to represent your name to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Think Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Smith. Please visit us at our website, www.thinkbible.online. To learn more about our ministry or to take advantage of the resources we have there for you, that's www.thinkbible.online. You can also find us at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the name Think Bible. Until next time, let's all think and live biblically for the glory of God.